0: Early in the spring when we round up the dogey, we mark them and brand them and bob off their tails. We round up the horses, load up the chuck wagon, and then send the dogeys out on the long trail. I little dogie, it's your misfortune and nine mile. The Akoma people told afterwards that he did not supplicate or struggle. Had he done so, they might have dealt more cruelly with him. But he knew his Indians, and that when once they had collectively made up their pueblo mind, moreover he was a proud old Spaniard, and he had a certain fortitude lodged in his well-nourished body. He was accustomed to command, not to entreat, and he retained the respect of his Indian vassals to the end. They carried him down the ladder and through the cloister, and across the rock to the most precipitous cliff, the one over which the Acoma women flung broken pots and such refuge as the turkeys would not eat. There the people were assembled. They cut his bonds, and taking him by the hands and feet, swung him over the rock edge and back a few times. He was heavy, and perhaps they thought this dangerous sport. No sound but hissing breath came through his teeth. The four executioners took him up again from the brink where they had laid him, and after a few feints dropped him in midair. So did they rid their rock of their tyrant, whom on the whole they had liked very well. But everything has its day. The execution was not followed by any sacrilege to the church or defiling of holy vessels, but merely by a division of the Padre's stores and household goods. The women indeed took pleasure in watching the garden pine and waste away from thirst and ventured into the cloisters to laugh and chatter at the whitening foliage of the peach trees and the green grapes shriveling on the vines. Uh, well, welcome back to the American Writers, 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And if you're following along, you know we are looking at the later novels of Willa Cather, um, and this is all part of a larger series I'll be looking at 20th century American writers. So we're moving right along with these later novels of Will Catholic. We'll be looking, I think it's the last six she wrote, or at least the last six she wrote, that were collected by the Library of America. I think there was one in there that they didn't include for some reason. But um, today it's Death Comes for the Archbishop. Uh, and at least the first half of it, the first part of Death Comes for the Archbishop. I guess in those days they didn't care about spoilers so much because... Um, you know, spoiler alert, he dies. The, the main character dies. Uh, this was published in 1927. It is uh, very much a novel about the frontier. I really feel stupid about something I was saying when I, you know, when I read. I, I noticed that the first novel in this series, A Lost Lady, really felt like her earlier novels like Song of the Lark and Old Pioneers and, and uh, My Antonia. And I, I kind of noticed that these seem to deal with different topics. So I said maybe she's moving away from the frontier, but that's not true at all. In fact, pretty much all the novels here still remain grounded in the frontier in various ways. And this one in particular, and the one that follows, uh, what's it called, um, Shadows on the Rock. That, that is another, very much a frontier story. But they're set in different times and places than her earlier novels. And I think that is really what's, what's different here. Um, so Death Comes for the Archbishop is... rather interesting it it explores the American frontier to a degree but it also it the region is is, it is a frontier region Um, but it was also once part of Mexico so the setting is right after the Mexican War or at least it begins after the Mexican War and it follows the career of the archbishop sent from Europe sent by Rome to this new diocese that's being established in in New Mexico, so there was kind of this was part of Mexico and they had their own bishops and their own priests there. It seemed like mostly priests. It didn't seem very well organized, and you know Rome decided after the United States you know stole half of Mexico in the Mexican War that it needed to be organized um, by you know kind of brought into some kind of normal relationship. All the priests had to sort of be. Um, put back under the hierarchy of the church. And so that required a, a diocese being set up there. And so the novel follows two, two priests who get sent there. Um, they're based on real people, by the way. So this is is drawn from life, even though these characters are, are you know, they have original names, but lar- largely their, their character portfolio is, is drawn from uh, the real bishops, the real two bishops or the real two priests who... You know, we're sent there basically to bring some order um, to this frontier region. In the book, they're called, uh, it's Father Latour and Father Valiente. Uh, I'm not quite sure how they're pronounced. These are both French priests who get sent there. And so that's a little bit of a tension here is that they are kind of, they're, they're higher ups in the church hierarchy, but they're from France. A lot of the local priests are, are from Spain or, or Mexican. They're kind of more local and they're kind of doing their own thing. So that's a theme that runs throughout this is just how much this really was a a frontier area, both from the perspective of the United States, from the perspective of Mexico, it seems, even though that's kind of in the backdrop of it. We don't really have a clear window into the relationship between the Mexican church and these priests. But it seems from the from the story we get that they were sort of allowed to do more or less what they want. And that's what the story I I read at the beginning suggests is, is that these, the reason those Indians executed that priest is basically he was, he wasn't that he was a horrible tyrant. He was just kind of materialist and greedy and and taking a lot of the wealth of the community for his own um, well-being, right? And so the Indians had eventually resist killing the priest and then kind of go on with life. That's the situation in a lot of the churches and a lot of the, the parishes throughout New Mexico. Um, another thing that's striking about this is this is such a huge area, right? For a for a diocese and for one bishop, even an archbishop, to to manage, you know, it's essentially the size of Europe, the the New Mexico, right? It's a massive territory. Not as many people, right? Of course, is more sparsely populated. I think it was the least sparsely populated part of Mexico at the time. This the stuff that America stole. It really was even from the Mexican point of view a bit of a frontier, right? Um, and if you know some of this history, you know, for instance, in the 1680s, there was a major revolt in the Puebla against the, the, the Spanish um, priests, which led to kind of a rearrangement of, of the relationship between the church and these Indian communities. And of course, a whole big, a big part of the Spanish frontier was the establishing of these different mission towns. And that relationship between those mission towns and the priests and the local Indian population is really key to that history. It's not a history that I'm, you know, that well informed on. I've read some stuff on it, but it's not really my expertise. Um, but that's all in the backdrop of here. So you have, you, basically, I, I'm suggesting there's there's a frontier from the three different perspectives. One is from that kind of Mexican, or even if you go farther back, the Spanish, right? Because Mexico got its independence, what, in the 1820s, and then you have the Mexican War in the 1850s. So it's that 30 year period when Mexico was a, a non slave holding republic. Um, before it ran into conflict with first Texas, which was really just an extension of the American slaving class trying to move west, and then eventually the United States leading to that disastrous defeat. And, and that whole history, I'll go back to my series on Lincoln for some of the consequences of that conquest of Mexico. So, And then you have it as, as kind of an American frontier, right? Because although the Americans aren't really very present in this novel, you don't really see the impact of that American conquest very strongly in here, but that that frontier is, is kind of hinted at throughout here. It's certainly part of the context. But then, from the perspective of the church, the church itself, it's kind of a frontier area that had to be tamed in a way. So the taming of the frontier, a theme so common in willow Cather's fiction, is here in this novel. Death comes for for the Archbishop. Um, so I like this novel. I, I think it's it's quite a lot of fun. It, it's quite serious. It's it, it deals with a lot of kind of nitty-gritty issues about the frontier. It's violent at times. It's, it's 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 but the most interesting thing is these stories of these these French priests, the bishops, trying to kind of bring some order to all these different dioceses, right? And then you hear about some priest who's kind of doing his own thing, he's not he maybe he's he's has girlfriends. Maybe he has children, maybe he's being cruel, or he's being exploitive, or, or whatever. He's kind of doing some, his own heterodoxy, and then these priests trying to come in and bring some order to it, right? And, and that's, the feel you, you get is, is just these bishops going on these different little side quests. Um, there's really not much of a plot other than this bishop arrives, and he works, and, and then he dies. That's, really, I mean, the closest we got to kind of an overarching plot is this effort to build a cathedral by Bishop La-, La Tour, he's trying to build a major cathedral to be a symbol of the arrival of Rome. I think to to this um, this frontier area. So there's a concept I would like to talk about a little bit. I know I've talked about it before in this podcast, but you know I don't know if you're aware. You know, sometime in all those episodes, I've mentioned it, and it's coming from Bernard Balin's book, The People in the British North America. It's a really short. Book. It's it's actually was an, supposed to be an introduction to what was going to be like a multi-volume work exploring the uh, the settlement of British North America. Um, one was called Voyages of the West. I think he finally published a second volume of that. I don't know if there's going to be any more coming out about that. But the original little introduction was published back in the '80s, and it it has like several essentially you know claims about. The settlement of British North America, I think there's four or five of them in that book, maybe four. One of those, though, is this idea of North America as a marchland of Europe. And it's a very interesting concept. Um, Of course, a march being kind of a border region, right? So back in feudal times, a, a king would set up, a put some of their strongest lords with the strongest military power in these marchlands, and that would be kind of a borderland with different kingdoms. It was to help protect and, and kind of be a defensive position. They were called marches, right? And I think the word marquis actually comes from that uh, that title, right? Um, now, like in medieval England, like after the Norman invasion, these march lords were a problem because they were so powerful they could sometimes even challenge the king, right? But essentially, the idea of a marchland is, a, is a s- similar to a frontier. Kind of concept, and so a marchland in the context of British North America and Balan's point of view just meant that it was far from essentially the center of the civilization. I don't mean civilization in in the old pejorative se- or the sense that there's civilized, uncivilized people, but a frontier from a civilization, you know, European civilization in particular. It, so it's far from that. So the idea here is that cultures get reinforced due to proximity right so I guess an easy example of this is when kids go off to college they stop going to church maybe or they stop celebrating all the holidays or everyone's birthday and they kind of get a little bit distant from the culture that they grew up in right so that's a that's a common experience we all have but when these you know when you move away from home or something not everyone goes to college of course but when you you kind of drift away from your homeland And that's what Bailin is saying happened to people in British North America, is that they kind of they came with English culture, but they kind of came away from it. So they were still Christian or they were still religious. They still believed in God and that stuff. But their way of belief, their practice diverged and sometimes diverged in weird ways and odd ways. Whether it was kind of heterodox ideas or they got influenced by Indian culture and Indian ideas or just the realities of frontier life. Right. Because everything was kind of undeveloped institutionally right and that was the case in in the 18th century that was what Balin really focused on the 17th and 18th century in his book and he sees i think slavery and the brutality towards indians as part of that distance now in reality european culture was pretty violent in its own ways of course remember renaissance europe had the witch trials throughout europe killing hundreds of thousands of women you had the inquisition you had constant war so let's not overstate how civilized Europe was at the time, but culturally, you have this kind of heterodoxy emerging in North America. And I think in this novel and in and in the the, the, the Shadows on the Rock, which is about Quebec in the 17th century, you have this idea of a culture that's kind of rooted in something European, something from the homeland, but it's diverged so much that it starts to be weird now what's happening in this novel less so in shadows on the rock but especially in this one is that effort to kind of reclaim this the the, these people have gone a bit astray right and so that's what i'm going to really want to emphasize in this novel death comes to the archbishop as i said there's not much of a plot here um the book itself is in in nine it's organized in nine different books they're essentially nine chapters and it's got a prolog so about 10 chapters all together here, they're all fairly short. Obviously, the novel itself was only about 160, 170 pages in the Library of America. So it's, a, it's another quick read. All these novels in this collection are, are pretty quick reads. Uh, none of them have the bulk of something like Song of the Lark. Um, but yeah, ten, 10 different chapters, and nine of them deal really with this Bishop Latour and his adventures and his struggles and, and the things he faced encountering this frontier. Culture. The prologue, though, is set at the center of of this civilization, this Catholic Roman Catholic civilization. And that's it's Rome, and so the setting is essentially a bunch of cardinals and bishops sitting around discussing what to do and with this new Mexican territory. And the decision comes down. I think it was personally proffered by a North American bishop that we need to set up a new diocese in New Mexico. And we need someone who can do this and who's best to do this. And, you know, the names get bounced around. But eventually it's decided that Jean-Marie Latour is going to be he's young. He's vibrant. He's, he's got the right background. He's he's the one to do this. And what we're reminded of the global reach of the church, but that that reach was often. Uh, loose at times. Right. And if you look at the global history of the Catholic Church, you know, you have missionaries establishing Christian communities, in china and in in japan in india all over the world and you know then they need to kind of institutionalize those communities and often you face struggles from local cultures you faced uh enduring traditions and what to do with that how do you kind of bridge the gap between existing culture and the new one and that's a theme in this novel as well and i think i'll get to it maybe a little bit towards the end of this episode because it's Something that comes up in Book 4 is just how powerful Indian traditions were. And even though many of these people were Christianized and, and have been affected by European culture, they can't give up their, their traditions entirely. Um, the emphasis right away, though, even in the first chapter, we feel the, the weight of the frontier on the minds of these, of these priests who can't um, fully understand it coming from, from Rome themselves. Uh, here's what one of the missionaries says. Your Eminence, the Bishop of Durango is an old man, and from his seat in Santa Fe is a distance of 1,500 English miles. There are no wagon roads, no canals, no navigable rivers. Trade is carried on by means of pack mules over treacherous trails. The desert down here has a peculiar horror. I do not mean thirst, nor Indian massacres, which are frequent. The very floor of the world is cracked open into countless canyons and arroyos. Fissures in the earth, which are sometimes 10 feet deep, sometimes a 1,000, up and down these stony chasms, a traveler and his mules clamor as best they can. It's impossible to go far in any direction without crossing them. If the bishop of Durango should summon a disobedient priest by letter, who shall bring the padre to him? Who can prove that he ever received the summons? This post is carried by hunters, fur trappers, gold seekers, and whoever happens to be moving on the trails. And that's, that's, what, that's his plea, this missionary who's been to the southwest. The, the American Southwest, he knows that this is not the job for this Bishop Durango who's kind of old and, and you know he's stuck in, in, El, in El Paso, Santa Fe, wherever. Uh, so it's, it's, you're going to need someone young and vibrant who can do these travelings themselves, and that's when they pick up on, on um, this father Latour to be the one who's going to kind of bring some order to this. So that's what's set up in the prologue. It's basically we have Quest, of sorts and that is to to bring established institutional um catholicism to this this region and then the, the choosing of who's going to do that um, now uh, what we know about willa Cather by now is that she's, she sort of regrets this arrival of civilization she sees this as something that kind of makes things more banal she's hostile to cons- to consumer culture she's hostile to in- this institutionalized culture uh, even though she sort of praises these bishops, she sees them as kind of very, fairly heroic figures, especially in this novel. We know from her earlier works, she she does see something glorious in that, that frontier era. But in this novel in particular, especially compared to Shadows on the Rock and, and the one we just looked at, The Professor's House, she's a little bit more ambivalent about the the, the deinstitutionalized frontier communities. That uh, They're often violent. They're often... Uh, there's a lot of corruption. It's not pretty. There's a lot of really brutal stuff going on in the margins of this novel. I, I think it's one of the interesting things about it, but it's it's something to... I, I think this this novel, even though it's thematically very similar to some of others about the bringing of order to a frontier, her, her values here are slightly different than what we saw in some of her other works, especially in how she does focus just on how how brutal this this area can be and then the contrast with the heroic nature of our of our main characters okay so the first book is called the vicar apostolic and it's basically our introduction to to jean marie latour um, it, it has like four mini chapters in it you know each of these books they're called books is is essentially a, a chapter and, and with different parts but um, they're all quite short i think they average around 20 pages or so um in the first one we're we the contrast is from like the rome in the center of the church to its most extreme frontier and we see bishop latour traveling through through new mexico and we've already had the description of just how hard those travels are how long it is i mean when you go off to visit a diocese you know it's it's months and months that these people are away on these these, these missions it's I mean, it's such a huge area, and travel is so, so undeveloped. There's no railroads. It's, everything's by horse uh, or by foot. Um, and so that's, that's what we're introduced to is, is just travels uh, along us. I think it's the Santa Fe Trail. I mean, there was some institutional trails established already by pioneers, by, in some cases, the Army of Corps Engineers. But it, it's still pretty, uh, a pretty, pretty wild uh, trip. And he encounters some of the people on the way as well in fact he meets one person and you know he knows spanish so he's speaking to all these people in spanish and he says like i'm a priest to her and she replies a priest that's not possible yet i look to you and it's true such a thing has never happened to us before it must be the answer to my father's prayer run pedro and tell father and salvatore so you know these are people who they're catholic but they've never seen a priest or never had access to priestly services and so a lot of what he does here at Latour and the and his his companion Valiant. Uh, what they do is is like they marry people, they baptize kids. In fact, they have to do it in that order. They have to marry couples and baptize the kids because you can't baptize the kids until the the marriage of their parents is is legitimized by the church. These are all services that just these sacraments hadn't been available to these people. Um, and even when there were priests, sometimes the priests were far away, or they were corrupt, or they really weren't doing their job. Um, so the first town he goes to, the first time he goes to that we were introduced to is called Agua Agua Secreta, Hidden Water. And, and, that, and that's what he does in this town is he essentially begins to, he meets the people, he has supper with them, and he performs these, the bishop performs these services for the, the local people. So then the next thing he does is he, he meets the, the old bishop of, of Durango, the, the old guy who couldn't really, wasn't really up for the job, and there's kind of a passing over of the documents and, and, the, and the details. And it's not a, you know, it's not a confront, confrontation, really. It seems that Bishop Durango understands the situation and, and, and hands over his, his domain without too much um, uh, drama. But again, we're just kind of reminded how much this is the frontier for the church. Um, Father Joseph, uh, a, a local priest says do not discompose yourself the same thing happened here on all, the Eve of All Souls Day a band of drunken cowboys like those who came to the church last night go out to the Pueblo and get the Tesca Indian boys drunk and then they ride in to serenade the soldiers at the fort in this manner. Quote. This is the kind of thing that happens kind of the daily occurrences here and it's, it's just what the, the bishops are, are facing. Um, as book one ends, he's, he's told the story of the, of the Virgin of Guadalupe, which of course is a fairly common story of a, of a local miracle, but it's just another kind of bit of the local character that's something that would have been unfamiliar to a, a French priest coming into this region, he learns about the local kind of beliefs and traditions. And the Virgin of Guadalupe, the Lady of Guadalupe, is just one more element of that, of how Catholicism changed in these different settings. And uh, she retells this, this, this story in a little bit of detail, it's being told to to Bishop Latour. So again, I think all of Book One is just emphasizing the frontier setting, but that that's kind of what the whole book does. Even though the overall arc of the story may be kind of the settling down of this this frontier a little bit. Um, book Two is called Missionary Journeys, and this this one really gets to the to the violence and the disorder of the frontier. So in Book Two, Missionary Journeys, uh, Latour and and uh, villani go together to administer sacraments to to a town and again like i said they they first do the marriages then they do the baptisms because they have to make sure these marriages are sanctified before they can baptize these kids but you know this is a town that's never that's catholic at least ostensibly but they've never had these pastoral services administered to them and of course for for catholics that's that's a very important part of 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 their faith um, now there's a really tragic story here though, in the second half of this book. And so they're out on their horses traveling around and they eventually they, they, they get a storm. And this storm forces them to get, basically get sucker from a local house. And it's the house of a name named Buck Scales. And he has this Mexican wife um, and she secretly sort of warns the priests that this guy is dangerous while they're at the house. And the priests pick up on that, and they, they come pack and they come armed, right? They, they actually have a pistol, and they're ready to defend themselves. And when they figure out that there's something suspicious going on, they, they try to get out of, the, out of the house before anything bad will happen to them. And they eventually have to confront this buck, this buck scales, about, you know, that they're going to leave, and they, they basically say, like, We're gonna, we can't stay here. We don't, first they're polite, and then they get a little bit more, insisted on, on their necessity to leave they even pull up their gun to threaten them and they eventually do get away um, and later on they, they, they get the whole story here um, they, they eventually get some help and they save this this woman from this, this cruel husband and they find out that he's essentially been taking in borders and murdering them and robbing them he's gotten her pregnant a bunch of times and committed infanticide with the children I mean this woman was basically a a sex slave of this of this cruel man who's been robbing people and murdering them for for quite a while they eventually hang him execute him and and there's a lot of executions in this novel actually it's a big part of this the story um let me find a bit of this story because it it is pretty striking it's one of the more memorable moments of the of the story of of the whole novel Um, yeah this is this is magdalena the woman's story Quote, An hour later, the woman whose name was Magdalena, calmed by food and kindness, was ready to tell her story. The notary had brought along his friend, St. Vern, a Canadian trapper who understood Spanish better than he. The woman was known to, uh, to St. Verne, moreover, who confirmed her statement that she was born Magdalena Valdez at Los Ranchos de Taos de Taos. And she was 24 years old. Her husband, Buck Scales, had drifted into Taos with a party of hunters from somewhere in Wyoming. All white men knew him for a dog and a degenerate, but to Mexican girls marriage with an American meant coming up in the world. She had married him six years ago and been living with him ever since in that wretched house on the Mora Trail. During that time, he had robbed and murdered four travelers who had stopped there for the night. They were all strangers, not known in the country. She had forgot their names, but one was a German boy who spoke very little Spanish and an English, a little English. A nice boy with blue eyes, and she had grieved for him more than all for all the others. They were all buried in the sandy soil behind the stable. She was always afraid their bodies might wash out in a storm. The horses Buck had ridden off at night and sold to Indians somewhere in the north. Magdalena had borne three sons since her marriage, and her husband had killed off each one of them a few days after birth by a way so horrible she could not relate it. After he killed the first baby, she ran away from him back to her parents at Ranchos. He came after her and made her go home with him by threatening to harm the old people. She was afraid to go anywhere for help, but twice before she had managed to warn travelers away, when her husband happened to be out of the house this time she had found courage because when she looked at the faces of the two padres she knew they were good men and she thought it if if she ran after them they could save her she could not bear any more killing she asked nothing better than to die herself if only she could ride near a church and a priest for a while and make her soul right with god End quote um, this is actually this the second or third time we see just the spiritual power of these priests that they're even though Cather presents some fairly human, heroic, but but yet human characters, the way they're perceived by these local people in New Mexico, especially the devout, the religious, is, is as you know almost supernatural you know figures, which of course, in their view, they were you know carriers of of, of the church, of God's word and 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 the sacraments, right, the power of God, uh, in their in their daily life. So this is a really memorable passage, and eventually Buck Scales is hanged after a trial, and and, go, and, and the story and the chapter sort of ends. But this is just yet another me- reminder of just how brutal this this frontier could be, and why they they so needed these youthful um, priests to kind of bring some religious order to this region. Now that's one struggle they're facing, but as we're going to see in book three, another struggle they faced was was just these degenerate priests, these people who run these parishes who just basically ran them on their own, who didn't care much for churchly traditions, who kind of uh, sometimes they they didn't maintain celibacy. Uh, often they were just kind of plundering the local local people. And that's really what book three is about. It's called The Mass at, at Okoma But if chapter two or book two is more about the, the violence of these Americans here, there's not much American presence in this novel. That's one of the Best examples of it. Book three is about Indian resistance to the priest class going back in time, right? So, book three, the Mass at Okoma, is really about uh, Latour with uh, Father Jacobs, another local priest, kind of an ally of, of Latour's efforts, visiting Albuquerque. And while there, they meet a man named Father Jesus, and he tells the story of. of of father balthazar and that's what i read to, read at the very beginning of this episode the about a this goes all the way back to the 18th century so it's from the previous century and but it's still after the playboy revolt so there, there's this is a part of that re-establishing of the church in the aftermath of the playboy revolt and that kind of overhangs this chapter and and some of some other parts of the novel as well is that this kind of second generation of of missionaries who came into the region after the revolt they they were more careful, perhaps, in how they had to deal with these these Indians, and sometimes that meant not really imposing all the discipline that you would expect of of, of a priest class kind of moving into the area. But still, it was still very frontier. So you have people like Father Balthazar, who basically ran these dioceses, or in this case, it was a parish, as his own private fief. Uh, all right, book four, Snake Root. That's the name of it. it, it this is actually my favorite uh, book in this entire novel, and it follows uh, Bishop Latour and and v- Valinette, however it's pronounced, uh, as they continue to establish themselves in the diocese. And in the previous chapter, we actually met a a Indian kind of helper of the bishop, and then. Uh, Juanito and he kind of toured him around a little bit in the previous chapter and this one we learn a little bit more about him um, and really the center what this chapter is really about is the Indian beliefs and how strong Indian beliefs continue to be in this in this diocese in, in New Mexico despite the arrival of the church and It's just another symptom of, of the overall frontier nature of, of this region and its diversity and, and the mixture of beliefs in people's heads and really the what instigates this this observation by Latour is he hears the story from him from this bonito, Uh and the child's ill, and due to this his his kid's illness he he tells the story the legend of the snake god, and basically the belief of the snake god is is that the snake god had to be appeased through the death of children quote there was also the snake story reported by the early explorers, both Spanish and American, who believed ever since that this tribe was peculiarly addicted to snake worship, that they kept rattlesnakes concealed in their house, and somewhere in the mountain guarded an enormous serpent, which they brought to the Puebla for certain feasts. It was said that they sacrificed young babies to the great snake, and thus diminished their numbers. Now, the context for this is the high death rate among Indians due to the arrival of Europeans and the old story of of disease, right? And here Willa Cather engages this. you know, that a lot many young Indians just didn't survive because of the arrival of these new diseases, that there wasn't the natural immunities for among the indigenous population. And that's all tied up with the story of the Columbian Exchange. And, you know, across North America, up to 90% of the native population died as a result of disease, uh, just by the encounter with Europeans, not even to mention violence and Ecological and environmental and economic displacement and all the other devastation that that Europeans brought to Native American communities. Right, quote: It was a pity too that nothing could be done for Anito's baby. Cradles were not many in the pueblos of Pecos. The tribe was dying off. In, infant mortality was heavy, and the young couples did not reproduce freely. The life force seemed low. Smallpox and measles had taken heavy toll here, time and again. Now, that out of this comes this interpretation by the indigenous people of these different spiritual explanations for this high death rate. Now, Latour and Willa Cather, as you know, writing this, bring this back down to earth, writing, it seems much more likely, compared to these myths, that the contagious diseases brought by white men were the real causes of the shrinkage of the tribe, among the Indians, measles scartatina and whooping cloth were as deadly as typhus and cholera certainly the tribe was decreasing every year anito's house was at one end of the living pueblo behind it were long rock ridges of dead pueblo empty houses ruined by weather and now scarcely more than piles of earth and stone the population of the living streets was less than 100 adults this was all that was left of the rich and populous pecunia of coronado's expedition then, by his report, there were 6,000 souls in this Indian town. They had rich fields of irrigated from the Pecos River. The streams were full of fish and mountains full of game. The Pueblo indeed seemed to lie upon the knees of this verdant mountain like a flavored child. End quote. So, I, I'm reminded of the, the Mesa town, the cliff city in a professor's town, which of course is completely extinct already, but here we see a, a civilization in the process of dying as a result of of the European presence. Now, this is not something Latour thinks too much about. I think he's aware that this is happening, but, but they don't, he doesn't quite personally make the connection to his own presence and the presence of his people in the region for causing this. Um, but overall, we're reminded of the strength of Indian beliefs in the context of this tragedy, right? that the Catholic tradition only provides succor so far that indigenous traditions fill in. When the priests aren't there when the church isn't there and when the church itself is a as a tentacle of this empire and i haven't used that word yet in this episode i probably should have that this really is a, a novel about empire and about empire building in the frontier um, quote the indian or the trader told him he they might make good catholics among the indians but he would never separate them from their own beliefs the priests have their own kind of mysteries. I don't know how much of it's real, and how much is made up. I remember something that happened when I was a little fellow. One night, a Pecos girl, with her baby in her arms, ran into the kitchen there and begged my mother to hide her until after the festival, for she'd seen signs between the Kakits, and she was sure they are going to feed her baby to the snake. Whether it's true or not, she certainly believed it, poor thing. And mother let me stay It made a great impression on me at the time. And that's how the chapter ends. The chapter ends with this insistence that, this, that Indian beliefs and traditional beliefs are, are going to, pre-Christian beliefs are going to remain here. And that's something that Bishop Latour is going to have to face if he really wants to impose Catholic discipline in the area. So at this point, we've looked at the first half of Death Comes for the Archbishop, the prologue in the first four books. There's still five more books I'll look at in the next episode. But I just want to recap a bit. We, we have the introduction of a frontier. We have many of the struggles he's facing. Uh, Catholics who don't have access to priestly services. Priests who are corrupt or exploitative or just too old or infirm to, to manage things in this huge frontier area. We have Indian resistance to... Uh, first the Spanish and then... Uh, and, the, and the Spanish clergy. And later on, this kind of new wave of 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 institutional christianity coming after the in the context of the american conquest of this part of the world we have americans coming in and you know exploiting the local population and then we have the endurance of tradition indian traditions in the face of all that so really we we just have all the host of things that this man is facing and that's what makes his story so heroic in a lot of ways is just what he was facing and, and the fact that it was able to bring any kind of normalcy to religious services in this region is a testament to uh, him. Now in the next episode, I'm gonna look at the last five books, but I also want to introduce the real characters that these figures are based off of. I would have done it now, but I'm, I'm having VPN troubles. I don't have access to Wikipedia. So next time I'm gonna start by reviewing who these people Latour and Valinette were based off based off of, and then to finish up what Willa Cather writes in the final four books of this, of this novel. So and it was a really great novel one to, to check out if you're interested in any of these topics. Um, so that's going to be it for now. Uh, let me know what you thought of this novel if you have come across it or read it. I really would appreciate and be interested in your thoughts on all this. Um, so you can send me an email at 100 pagescastgmailcom at gmail.com com or just leave your comments below i I'm, i love hearing from you guys when you do take the time to to write me or leave your comments so um that's yeah that's that's going to be it for now so thanks as always for listening i'll see you next time with uh, the conclusion the second half of death comes your Fourth mother was a raised away down in texas where the jensen mm-hmm. weed in the sanders grow. we'll feed you up on prickly pear oil. And then send you open to old light at home Will beye I own.